I bumped into Steve Bernard, who was uh, the manager of the Australian cricket team oh, five, six, seven years ago at uh, Warren's uh, little function for his book called Mr. St. George. And um, he's also he also played cricket for Northern Districts and St. George and, and for New South Wales, a fast bowler. Come and meet uh, Steve Bernard and listen to what he's got to say. I'm at Hurstville Oval in Sydney at the home of the marvellous St George Club, a former player of St George, Steve Bernard, also a manager of the Australian cricket team. Is that right, Steve? Uh, an ex-manager, Ian, dare yeah. I say. It's been uh, seven years since I was manager, but I was watching TV the other night and look at my successor, Gavin Davey, and I thought, you're, you're earning your money at the moment. It's a, it's a very tough time for the side, and all those uh, involved at uh, senior level will be hurting badly, and, you know, I... Uh, I can only say I'm, I'm, I'm certainly glad nothing like that happened in my time and, uh, and I'm wondering how my successor is handling it, but uh, he's a smart guy and you know, the side needs to pull together and I'm sure he's leading from the front there at the moment. We're going to suffer for a while and I think our good name has uh, been blackened, uh, Australian cricket, and uh, I, dare I say I know a lot of people around the world and my uh, emails and my SMS messages have been going ballistic and uh, there's a lot of people who I think in a way think we're getting our comeuppance for things that have happened in the past so we're going to have to live through some tough times I'm sure that um, spectators in other uh, countries will remind our players of this and they'll remind them for a long time so yeah our guys are going to have to be tough and put up with it and they're going to have to learn not to react to it because it'll be part of their landscape I would believe from now on. We're here at St George because we're celebrating the life and times of one of your former captains, Warren Saunders. A book's just been done by John Rogers called Mr St George. Mighty man, tell me your memories of uh, Warren. Well, as it turned out, uh, uh, seems I'm the author of the name of the book, uh, not the author of the book itself, but John Rogers asked me a couple of years ago about Warren. He's thinking of a book, and I said, well, I've always seen Warren as Mr St George, and that's how I, I do see him. And no, from I'm just trying to work it out today. It's 48 years since I came down from the country to play cricket in the city, and one of my first games was against uh, St George here at Hurstville. And uh, my captain at the time, Barry Rothwell, at Northern Districts, told me that he said you're going to have a really uh, interesting game coming up. You're going to play against the best side in Sydney. He said, but not only are they the best side, he said they have got fantastic men running them, uh, running the club, uh, as in Warren Saunders and Brian Booth. And he said. They are great to play against on the field. He said they're great to uh, mix with off the field. So it's always been other clubs have had a very high opinion of St George because it has been a very well-run club over the years. There are a few people who are instrumental in that being the case, but I think Warren is probably the one who deserves most credit. Uh, He's been involved with the club for, I'd imagine, nearly 70 years, and he's... uh, served at every capacity on and off the field. He's a man respected by everyone who's dealt with him. I think today was a wonderful day just to recognise what he has done for not just St George but the whole community in fact. Steve it's a wonder that that sort of culture that people here talked about today, Alan Davidson, Neil Marks and that culture of cricket hasn't leaked into the Australian team because I know that a lot of people have felt a bit of disquiet, not just recently, but you know, for the last 5, 10, 15 years about Australian cricket. Um, why hasn't that leaked into a good cu- club culture? Obviously, should should transfer into the state and the national team. Well, you would hope uh, that every club uh, in Australia sets a good culture. I mean, they've got the, the kids who are getting their spurs learning cricket and they've they need to be inculcated with you know what the game is about, the spirit of the game, and uh, the right way to play it. How you deal with people on the field at the highest level, at test level, it is dog eat dog. And I suppose you know everyone's looking for an advantage. I can only think that might be the reason what's happened in South Africa happened that they're trying to find an advantage just to give them that little bit of the extra one percenter. But uh, 
you know, going back to it, there are a number of clubs in Sydney I've dealt with, and they do have good cultures, and, and they do try and teach their young players the right way to, to attack the game. If you do that, and, and enough clubs are doing it, you would hope that that would pass then through to the state side, and especially if you get leaders in your club who end up leading state sides, and that in itself, you would hope, is something that permeates upwards, not downwards. So we've got to hope that maybe the culture that everyone is unhappy with with the Australian side doesn't go down. I think we've got to work hard at this level, at grade level, to ensure that everyone does the right thing, plays it in the right spirit, and hopefully that'll, that'll stand cricket in good stead. I'm talking to Steve Bernard, who was manager of the Australian cricket team uh, for a number of years. Steve, how hard was that job? You're dealing with managers and all that sort of thing now, aren't you? I mean, is that uh, must be a real pain in the neck to me, it would be. Uh, I've got to say it was a very good job and I enjoyed it immensely but uh, it was a very busy job and, and you're on the road, I remember one year I was away from home 326 days so you, you know, that's one of the downsides of what was a good job but in essence as a manager you've, you're, you're the CEO of the side I suppose, you've got 12, 13, 14 staff, often you know, 15 to 17 players on tour, you've got a lot of people to keep organising and keep everyone moving in the same direction and, um, but in saying that, that's, you know, it was an organisational job, uh, I was certainly not one of the coaches or I'm not the captain you know my job is to make sure everything else is right for them so they could go and play cricket without any distractions and, and all the organization and logistics around the side uh, were working properly how would you deal with what's going on now do you reckon well i'm sure as tim payne said last night it's been a very difficult couple of days for the side and captains the, the senior players plus the manager and uh, and the coach have got to ensure that they keep their uh, their heads up i mean you know, they've got to take what's coming their way. I'm sure the Joburg crowd, which I've experienced before at uh, an interesting time, so they'll remind the Australians of what's happened. I think the management really have to stand up here and just keep the guys together. There's no use letting them get morose and, uh, and going off by themselves to their rooms. They need to keep them together. They need to talk about it, have them discuss it and, uh, and get everyone as comfortable as reasonably possible under these circumstances. I mean, that's an impossibility to be comfortable per se but whatever happens they've got another test to play there's no use uh, going out with their heads down and defeated they've still got to lift them so they're ready for this test match. Steve where do you live now and what do you do? I'm living in Randwick I've uh, been there for a long time once I retired from the Australian side I, I thought I was a retired gentleman but for the last seven years I've been a match referee for the ICC and also for the last six years for Cricket Australia so I'm in that fortunate position where I still get around and watch cricket and essentially my job is to work with the umpires and do reports on them and try and help their performances but you know, I get to travel the world and catch up with old friends, I see cricket and I think to myself that's it's not the worst life, I'm, I'm involved in a game I still love and uh, I've got a, a role that fulfils me at this stage and I, I enjoy doing it. As a former fast bowler, we hear lots now about stress fractures and stuff. How are you holding up? I think I've been lucky. And I, I say genetics is everything in life. I've, I had a, an action that probably put a bit of stress on my body, but I've basically been all right. I had a, I had a little tuck on my knee about seven years ago. Uh, something had to be shaved on my meniscus cartilage. But by and large, apart from muscles, which are twanged and tweaked so many times that I'm, I'm not capable of running anymore, I can uh, trot and walk. But uh, apart from that, I've come out of it pretty well when I'm... When I see the amount of old fast bowlers, some who I've been talking to inside today who've uh, had replacement knees and uh, hips and whatever, I've got to say I'm, I'm pretty thankful at my age that uh, I'm, I'm still hanging in there and uh, there's not too, been too many you know, physical ailments hit me as yet. Steve Bernard, it's great to talk to you, mate, and thanks very much. Nice to meet you. That's my pleasure. Thanks, Ian. G'day, this is Macca. G'day, Macca. It's uh, Peter. I'm calling you from Blackall here. 
Oh, g'day, Pete. How's yeah, things? What are you... um, busy, mate. Busy on the way home. <laughs> Where, where's where's home? What do you, what do you mean? What are you doing? I'm um, truck driver heading back from uh, Macarthur River back to Brisbane or Caboolture. Tell people uh, where Macarthur River is because uh, most people we're we're all blissfully ignorant of geography, but especially um, especially our own or well, some of us are. Where's Macarthur River? Uh, up in the Gulf Country near Boorooloola. Mm-hmm. Um, it's about. Uh, about five hours north of Barkley Homestead, so about twelve hours from Mount Isa, sort of thing. And what right were you taking? Yeah, what were you taking up there, Pete? Uh, all mine equipment. We uh, do hot shot freight to the mines all around Australia. So, yeah, anything and everything, <laughs> whatever the mines need, we take. <laughs> uh, and where, where's home for you, Pete? So you go everywhere, do you? Yeah, go everywhere. Yeah, I've been away since last Saturday. I'll be home come Monday to watch the Tigers play the Eels, um, and then probably be gone again the next day, I'd say. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to getting home and seeing the wife again <laughs> after a yeah. week away. Yeah, watching the Tigers play the Eels. I don't know who you... Who do you support the Tigers, do you? West Tigers. I've always been a Balmain boy. We don't cry. <laughs> <laughs> well, not this year. <laughs> no, no, not so far. Yeah. We've got to see what happens there. Yes. Hey, I, I rang up last week, uh, but it was because of the time difference I missed out. But I just wanted to let you know how green it looks out here at the moment. And uh, the Baku River is flowing like I've never seen it before. Um, the country looks great at the moment out, out west of Queensland. I've never seen it so good. No roofs on the road either. Yeah, well, they don't have to go to the road, do they? To get the no. the pick, they can go anywhere. That's uh, that's really nice. It's a lovely. It's lovely to see that, Pete. Especially a river that doesn't, you know, like the uh, Baku or the um, what's the other one out there? Um, not oh, a... there's a few out here. I'm just trying to think. Um... Yeah, I spoke to I spoke to a lady in um, in Blackall. Oh, when we were we were in Blackall last. No, was it November? I think last yep. November. We yep. did a, we did a program there, and I spoke to a lady who who had lived out in the Baku. Um and uh, no, it wasn't the par was it the Paru or the Baku? The Paru, yeah, yeah, the Paru and the Baku, yep, yep, yeah, out there. So that yeah, it was really nice, but um, it was dry there when we were there. Yeah, no, it's uh, definitely green and, and flooded now. It's uh, I've actually got some pictures of it, took some photos, so um, I'll try and get that through to your Facebook page, I guess. Yeah, or um, yeah, you can send it to uh, Kelly dot Lee, Kelly dot Lee, yeah, Kelly. Dot Lee, L-double-E at abc.net.au. That'll be the best okay. way. So, no worries, I'll have a look for that. Yeah. Um, Pete, uh, so you're heading home. Where did, where did you say home was? Uh, Caboolture now. I moved up from Canberra two years ago, uh-huh. um, which was really good listening to talk to the boys from Hall there. I'd actually driven coaches in and out of their uh, uh, place taking tourists in for their barbecues and that. So it was very interesting talking to listen to talk to Gold Creek boys and that and, and Hall. Yes, well... Uh, Every every place because Hall's you know Hall it's a lovely little village. Yeah, beautiful. Um, yeah, but um, Canberra's slowly creeping closer. That's why I um that's why I left two years ago. It used to have a country feel to it mm. uh, when I first moved there in the eighties, but now it's just become like a big city again. And now I'm in Caboolture. It's got the same sort of feel that Canberra had back in the old days to me. Anyway. Yeah. Oh, that's good, Pete. I, that, I like that like that country feel. And you're having breakfast now in in Blackhall. Yeah, I'm just uh, cooking up some beans and a coffee for myself on the side. I thought I might have beat the flies, but I think they followed me here because <laughs> I'm actually doing some aerobics at the moment while I'm talking to you. <laughs> uh, uh, all right, Pete. Great to talk to you, mate. No worries, buddy. Have a really good day. Keep in touch. No worries, Jim. Go, go the Tigers. Bye. Go the Tigers. See you, mate. Yeah, g'day, Macca. This is, uh, well, the reef pilot on the ovation of the seas. 
biggest ship ever to pass through Torres Strait. There you go, um, Will. Uh, yeah. That's your name, Will? Yeah, well, short for Wellam. Wellam. But, uh, yeah, that's uh, a bit of a mouthful, so uh-huh. I'm Will. Oh, no, that's all right. So, <laughs> so you're, a, you're a pilot based where, Will? Well, I live in uh, Brisbane, mm-hmm. but um, the, uh, the east coast, uh, the inner route of the Barrier Reef and uh, Torres Strait, that's my uh, neck of the woods where I ply my trade. And you're on board at the moment? I am indeed. I'm on the bridge and uh, we've just cleared the Prince of Wales Channel and heading out to uh, to Booby Island on an absolutely magnificent day. Beautiful day up here. Oh, well, isn't that nice after all the cyclones and, and yeah. bad weather that's been up that area? Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, so we've got uh, 4,280 very happy passengers on board at present. <laughs> isn't it amazing? It must be a huge ship. And what's the draft on a ship like? Uh, what's it called? The Ovation of the Sea. Yeah, Ovation of the Sea. What's yeah, the, the draft? Biggest, it's the biggest ship that comes to Australia, cruise ship that comes to Australia. Wow. Uh, the draft actually is only nine metres. It, uh, it doesn't draw a, a great deal. That's sort of 30 feet. Uh-huh. Um, so we put a lot deeper ships through the straits, but uh, it's just the sheer dimensions of it. You know, it's 350 metres long and nearly 50 metres wide, 16 decks. And, uh, yeah, it's just a big lump of ship. Now, you have to, now is this right, you have to sort of uh, wait for the tides and sort of go around in circles for a little while, um, a bit like a, a plane, um, you know? Yeah, not not so much on this because it's, it's only nine metres draft, so we don't have to wait too much for the tides. But um, right as we speak, there's uh, there's a few bulkies uh, in sight, big bulk carriers that are drawing uh, well over 12 metres and... Uh, they're coming through on the top of the tide, uh, which uh, is at present. Uh-huh. Um, we have to wait around and uh, do circles and maybe anchor for a while until the tide gets to the high spot. Yes. Yeah, so how long have you been doing this gig, uh, Well, 32 years. 32 I'm years. The, uh, the longest uh, serving pilot on the reef at the moment, but uh, not for much longer, mate. Not for much longer. I'm going to pull the pin. Oh, really? Yes. Um, but what a great job. Uh, and I loved being up because we went on one of those ships, the um, the Endeavour River, round from oh, yes. uh, round from Weeper, round the oh, top yeah. and back down to Gladstone. And, and I was up there in, on the, you know, in the bridge and stuff and hear all the, I, I uh, listened to and recorded some of the, um, the calls coming in from the, the Coast Watch. Do they still have the Coast yes. Watch flying up and down the coast looking at... Uh, coast Watch, uh, yes, they do. In fact, uh, we had one buzz us a couple of days ago further down near the Whitsundays. Um, <clears throat> but, uh, of course, we have Reef VTS, which keeps a, an, a, an electronic eye in the sky over us all as we, uh, we pass through this whole area. They do a wonderful job. Because um, I, I assume drug smoke, because they, I think they check every boat. They when and this was when were we doing that, Kel? In about ten years ago, I suppose. Um, yeah. And uh, they were checking every boat, sailing ship, and I suppose, and they they called in, and I was just listening on the thing as the captain was listening, and you over here, hello, boat so and so, what's your name, where are you bound for, where are you from, that sort of stuff. Because I assume that's uh, how drugs get into Australia too. Yes, yes, indeed. Yeah, and they still do that. Yeah, they, they keep a, uh, a pretty good eye on things. I think they, they call themselves Border Force now and they've got mm. some pretty nice uh, vessels and uh, an aircraft in the sky. So uh, I don't think too much, if anything, slips through now that uh, they keep a pretty good eye on things. So where do you get on to the ovation of the sea? You fly on board with a helicopter, do you? or? Uh, no, not this one. No, not the, not the cruise ships. I got on in Brisbane uh-huh. and uh, boarded up the Queensland coast through the Whit Sunday Passage and uh, and then up through here. And I'll get off in Darwin 
in a couple of days' time. I see. And then and, what? Uh, and then what? And fly then I home go back or to Brisbane? I fly home and I do it all again on uh, <laughs> on a sister ship in a couple of weeks' time. But what a great job! A lovely. You obviously love it, but you what? You've had enough of it, have you? Oh yes, yes, mate. Yeah. Um, you know, fifty fifty two years in all at sea, so uh, it's time I. Uh, Went home and gave a bit of time to the family. Yes, exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah. But um, a, a great job, a life at sea, especially if you can stick around the Australian coast. I've talked to tug drivers and they say it's it's best because they're still at sea, but they can go home at night mostly. Yes, yeah, no, this is, this has been a, uh, a pretty good job. Uh, you're not away from home for too long, indeed. So, uh, and uh, yeah, oh, well, I reckon it's the best job in the world, especially when we're doing the, uh, the cruise ships. It's a pretty nice environment to work in. Always... People always enjoying themselves, and uh, what could be better when you've got a lot of happy faces around you? Yeah. I bet you didn't think when you started off you'd be doing uh, cruise ships that are holding over four four thousand people. I mean, it's a little city on the on the go, isn't it? Yes, yeah, it certainly is. Yes, no, and you're absolutely right. I uh, would never have dreamed that uh, I'd be taking that many people through in one shipload, uh, and of course, you know, it's four thousand. Uh, 280 passengers, but then we've got nearly 2,000 crew on board as well. So um, the numbers really creep up and uh, almost frightening when you think of it. Um, but uh, you're, you're ferrying this many passengers around in one lot. Well, look out, uh, look out the window now and tell us what you see, what part of the coast you're on. Um, you're near, uh... Well, I'm looking back uh, to the east uh, along the full length of the ship. And I can see, uh, we say, Goods Island uh, immediately astern of us. But in the further distance, I can see Thursday Island, all the uh, the community there, the houses of Thursday Island. And uh, being such a lovely clear morning, they're sticking out very prominently. And uh, so, yeah, Thursday Island, of course, you've obviously been there. Um, no, I haven't, Will. community, haven't you? No, I haven't been there. Oh, goodness me. I haven't been. Goodness me. <laughs> and I probably won't get there now. You'd better put that on your bucket list. Yeah, well, I would. I'd love to do a program there, but, you know, yeah, yeah. times change. Yeah. Um, well, great to talk to you. Yes, likewise. And, uh, yeah, well, a very happy Easter to you and uh, all your listeners there, yeah. Maka. And all your all your passengers too, all 4,300 of them or whatever it was. Yeah, well, I'll be talking to them all in uh, in a few minutes' time because uh, I give them a bit of commentary about what's going on and I'll uh, I'll tell them that Maka has sent them... Um, <laughs> And what do you tell Easter them? Greetings. Yeah, good. I will. Yeah, you can do that. What do you, What do you tell them? Oh, what? I just tell them about uh, about the places we're passing through. You know, I've got lots of stories about the Torres Strait Islands and uh, coming up the coast. We tell them a lot about uh, the old explorers and uh, a few little uh, quirky bits of history and a little bit of humour. A few <laughs> stories about uh, some of the ships I've been on. What? Where are they? Where are they from? Are they mostly Australians, or are they from yeah. all over? Yeah, no, there's nearly four, nearly four thousand of them are Australians, and then we've got a few, uh, a few Poms, some Canadians, a few Americans, and even a few Germans on board. Twelve Germans, I think it is. Oh. Uh, but there's four hundred kids here, so uh, it's uh, it's a great spot for the kids. They're having an absolute ball. Yeah. Well, it almost changed my mind to go on a cruise one day, but I've <laughs> I've said um, just shoot me if they find me on a cruise boat. But anyway. Oh. Um... <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, but, but maybe that'll change. Well, oh yeah, yeah. No, it's a it's a nice atmosphere on board. Yeah, good on you. Well, great to talk okay. to you. Likewise, Macca. See, see you. Bye. Bye. Uh, last week I met this bloke. His name's Doug Taylor, 
and like uh, the lady from across in Western Australia, uh, he travels. He travels down from the Territory with his dogs. That's how keen he is. Come and meet Doug. I'm talking to Doug Taylor. Doug, you're a long way from home. You're from Darwin. Yeah, came down for the uh, for the national. I hadn't. It's a new sport for me, so I decided I'd um, take it up. I tried a few other sports, but couldn't find which one I wanted. And this is the one I picked. So, what do you do for a living, Doug? I'm a civil construction uh, company in Darwin. In Darwin, yeah. And there's been a lot of work up there, I'd say, at the moment. Uh, been a bit quiet last twelve months to two years, but starting to come on a bit stronger now. And you felt like you needed uh, another interest, did you? How does that? How does that happen? You read about it in the paper, or what happened to your neighbour, or what? No, I don't know. I'd sort of done a bit of it as a as a young fella, and I sort of pulled out when I was about eighteen, nineteen, and got into the construction business. And that just sort of took me around Australia, ended up in Darwin. So I was there for been there about thirty something years now. Decided I'd start to pull up. And do they do any of that in Darwin? I wouldn't have thought there would be a lot of sheep trolling in Darwin. No, we do a little bit of cattle trialling, but very little of that too. So I had to bring import some sheep from down south <laughs> to come up to uh, to Great train love dogs. Great, love has no man. <laughs> You're keen. <laughs> yeah, well, I've travelled four thousand k's to get to this one, mm. and I'll do this one in Molong and then uh, turn around and go home again. So you said you've tried some other sports. What other sports did you try? Well, I tried fishing. I tried boating. <laughs> I bought an aeroplane. I started doing that, but. Um, <laughs> just couldn't get the one I wanted, so I, this one came to mind from from years ago. So I went, flew to Sydney, got a couple of dogs, and came back, and now I'm, here I am. So. so where do you keep the sheep in Darwin? What are you in your backyard or something? Do you? <laughs> no, I keep them on a small rural block just out of town. And, and how do they cope with that? Uh, no, they're good. They're, they're called a dorper, so that apparently they they're the only ones that are allowed in the Northern Territory. You're not allowed to have them, or in the top end, you're not allowed to have them. So they're oh. allowed to have a, a dorper sheep. Yeah. Oh right. And what about your dogs? What sort of dogs you got? I got all border collies. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. And how do they take to the top end? No, because a lot of them are born up there, so they're pretty good. They're yeah. they're pretty, you know, pretty happy. With it. But you got to got to be careful, and they do overheat pretty quick. So you got to really keep an eye on that you don't overwork them. They must be just uh, pinching themselves to be down here in the cool here. We're in the night air in Canberra. It's lovely. It's about oh, twenty degrees. Beautiful. Yeah, I got up about six o'clock this morning. Took them out across the prairie, and uh, the prairie. They, they were loving. <laughs> they were loving it out the, the back here. With the prairie. <laughs> There was a bit of mist and these dogs were racing around there. They couldn't, yeah, they were they're loving it, yeah. I just came down to get a bit of a taste because our wet season's on, so yeah. civil construction, we can't one, do much. You? Yeah, we have. It still looks like a sort of a half a cyclone coming in this weekend. So. Yeah. No yeah. crocodiles in the backyard or anything like that? No, and the dogs have been lucky there. They've swum in a few rivers but never got taken yet. <laughs> <laughs> Life in the top end. All right, Doug, well, nice to talk to you. Good luck. All right, thanks, Macca. G'day, how, how you doing, Micah? Um, I'm well. Who's that? Uh, this is Stuart here, uh, Micah, and I'm calling you from uh, the Spell Gift uh, down in Victoria. And, oh, um, what, a, what a great place to be. Micah, this is, this is a, a sort of dream for me because, you know, as you can probably gather, my accent is a bit weird. Uh, <laughs> and and uh, my hometown, Edinburgh, hosts the world's second biggest gift, the New Year gift. Um, and all the boys up there, they do the New Year gift, and then they come down. Uh, the kids to come down here a lot to to stall uh, and run the gift here. Uh, and we've had one one lad who won it here, uh, a gentleman by the name of George McNeil. And he is, his distinction is he won it in the hundredth year of the stall gift. 
And he also won the one in Edinburgh in its 100th year as well. So it's a bit of a unique uh, double. But, uh, but you know, I'm here from, I'm based now in North Queensland in Cairns. And we've got two runners who are just starting out on the professional running uh, circuit. So it's, it's just a dream. It's just a fantastic place. It's all it's just awesome. Uh, listen, Stuart, tell me this. Um, you've had a fair bit of snow up where you used to come from, haven't you? Yes, uh-huh. uh, all my mates on Facebook are showing me these photographs and it's just basically white. <laughs> Everything's white. Um, yes, uh, my hometown was in a state of red emergency, which means that you know, nobody could nobody could get to work unless you were able to walk. Uh, trains were down, you know, buses were down, couldn't drive the car. So it's very, very snowy up there. And then I'm sending photographs from Cairns, <laughs> where it's tropical, uh, uh, and they're a bit jealous, but you know, it's, <laughs> it's all good banter, and you know we love it in Cairns. We've had a lot of rain with the monsoon, and yeah. our, 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 our lads here actually couldn't train the last couple of weeks because of the heavy rain. We couldn't get to our training venue. When we did, did get to the training venue, the grass was so saturated, we, we just couldn't train, so we just went into the gym and stuff like that. So, you know. so, Stuart, tell me the story. You're down there at the stall gift. Yeah. Uh, you're not running? <laughs> no. No, I used to, I used to be a runner, but now now it's about the the kids that I coach. Uh-huh. Uh Yeah, I, I I can't do both, so were you know, you, I'm happy were, coaching. Were you any good? Were you were you uh, how good? Um, I used to I used to run for Scotland in the in the 400 meter hurdles event, which you know before before I couldn't I couldn't run professional because there used to be a ban on on us competing with the pros because we yeah. couldn't take money. All those days, uh, yep. And also my event, the 400 meter hurdles, is not an event in any case. Uh, but but I, we we know about the professional culture. I was brought up with them, and when I became a coach, I left university. I was mentored by two very good professional coaches, uh, and so they always talked about the pro, the pro gifts and the ones in Australia and the circuit. And now I'm doing here down here, basically living my own dream, I suppose you could say. It's awesome. So who's going to win the store gift? Are, you, are these boys you're coaching, are they boys and girls, are they, or what? Uh, it's two lads we've got down, um, and you know they're novices. So what ha- happens basically is they get handicapped right at the back, so they cannot win because the handicappers just haven't seen them. And so this is called investing in your mark. So we're investing in the mark. Once the handicappers see what they're able to do, then the, the marks become uh, more realistic. So it's a period of time you have to do this. Stuart. In terms of in terms of who's going to win, we've got an American sprint hurdler down who's very quick. Um, and he looked good in the heat. And the lad from Brisbane, um, Gary, um, can't remember his second name, he's, he looked very good as well. And there's a couple of other fast qualifiers. The fastest qualifiers are within a tenth of each other. Uh, so, you know, it looks like it's going to be a fairly open final. Uh, and it's going to be really exciting, you know, with that American hurdler in there. That's really put the cat amongst the pigeons. It's oh. really good. It's an exciting time, isn't it? It's all about it's yeah. all about the running and the gambling and the betting and the whole the yeah. whole thing. When we were down there, about uh, I don't know, as I said, we were there ten or fifteen years ago. I met a lovely old bloke who who said he'd he'd, um, he'd invented the. Um, you know the uh, running, the starting blocks, and yes. Um, yes. and uh, he was a lovely old fella. And then I met another bloke who, or he rang me up from Adelaide, and he said I've got a, he, you know, he he was a gambler, and he said he had a system, and he was a lovely fella. It was yeah, just, yeah, and yeah. everyone was dressed up in different things, and they came along to That's our right. program in dressing gowns, and it's just a, a fabulous <laughs> time, great. Stuart. Fabulous. Oh, it's it's fantastic, and the 
the ground here is beautiful. The grass is like like the 18th hole at St Andrews. Yeah, it's absolutely <laughs> beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. It's just manicured and. You know, I all the things around it for kids, and you know, my daughter Natasha is down here, and she's taking part in the Easter egg hunt later on this morning. And oh, dear. you know, really, it's what just, a great it's place to so be! Good. This is this is how to organise sport. Really, it is. Everyone's involved. It's yeah, good. and no sle- no sledging, no leadership group. It's, uh, it's no, a- no, 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 no. <laughs> I've been involved in a professional coach. I, I had I was a national coach over an African country before I came here, and. And leadership groups, you know, we, my, me and my assistant coach, we were the leadership group, and we took advice from people. But but this leadership group thing, just I don't know. I think it's a way to spread. I think it's 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 on the way out, uh, Stuart. I think it is. I Stuart, tell is. me tell me this quickly. Um, yeah. What, firstly, why did you ring us? Do you listen to the program in Kansas or what? What? I'm, I've I've been listening to you since I since I got off the boat in Australia uh, ten years ago. Uh, and and you've made my Sunday morning just absolutely wonderful, and it's great for me because I I get a, I can now get a handle on what what it's like to be you know what Australians are about. I wish I know? could get a handle on that. <laughs> uh, so it, it it always always has a you know your show has a, a good insight into aspects of Australian life, yeah. which now you know it's such a real education for someone like me. Yeah, it's great for Australians, of course. Well, it's good for everybody. And and Stuart, why did, why did you come to Australia? Uh, well, I was working in New Zealand as a director of coaching, and I was I was really wanting to get back to coaching again, rather than sit behind a desk and talk about it. So, so I came over here and went to Brisbane first of all, coached some national champions, and then then moved to Cairns, um, and we're just setting up a a, a, a professional sprint setup up there. So, yeah, we're just in the early stages of that, but you know, I just love coaching, so it's just. Thing I want to do, mate. I, I, I can picture where you are because we were there that morning. It was lovely. Yeah. Enjoy yourself, Stuart. Keep in touch and let us know how it all goes. If you're coming to Sydney anytime or we're up in Cairns, let's get together. That'd be great, my car. I'd really appreciate that. I'll be in touch. Some weeks ago, I spoke to this bloke, Ken McGregor. Uh, interesting story about Albert Namajira. Ken, um had an interesting introduction to Ken McGregor. It was when he was at school. He'll tell you the story. Come and meet Ken McGregor. There's not too many people who can actually define the day when their life changes, but when I was very young, probably at eight or nine years old, I uh, accidentally threw a ball through the headmaster's window. And, uh, of course, I was in those days, you put your hand out and you got the strap for doing something like that. Anyway, I was in his office waiting for him, and there's this marvellous painting hanging on the wall, and I was very intrigued with it. I just was fascinated with the, with the qualities of it and also the colours. I stood up and I was looking at the painting when he came in. It was only a print, and I read the name. It was Albert Namajira, and he asked me, you know, if I liked the painting, and I said, yes, I'm, I, I love it, you know, it's great. So my punishment was actually to go to the library and, and, and read a book on Albert Namajira. Now that man, you know, I'll never forget the incident, I can't even remember who the headmaster was, but that changed my life because several years later when it went to a tech school, the school trip, and you know, people might laugh these days because nowadays kids go to Paris and to, to Berlin and New York. Well the school trip was um, to Alice Springs, which was just extraordinary for me because after reading uh, the book on Albert Namajira and then actually trying to get as much photographs and information together as, as I could about the Aboriginal people in particular. I was fascinated. So I washed cars and mowed lawns for months, saved up enough money to go on this school trip, and there I was, you know, four years later after that, sitting in, in the creek bed with his descendants. And, you know, from that, as I said, I learned the culture of the Aboriginal people and that. And, you know, you're talking about a culture which is 
thousands and thousands of years old and it predates most cultures. Alman Emadjir in particular was a fascinating person because they say he was a, you know, he lived between two cultures. He was a, a full-blood Aboriginal man, even though he was brought up on Hermansburg Mission, which was a Lutheran mission. He learned how to paint from another artist, a white artist called Rex Batterby, who was a very good artist in his own right, and we're talking about watercolours here. And in fact, Albert Nemajira was Rex Batterby's camel boy on some of the trips that he did into the desert. So um, when Albert saw some of these paintings, he said to Rex, I think I can paint like you can. Rex, being a very, very generous person, said, well, look, next time I come back to Hermansburg, I'll give you a couple of lessons and then you can, you can have a go at it, which he did. And the rest is history. I mean, the, some of the work that he did with just having a couple of weeks tutorage was just extraordinary and what the paintings that he did did go into a lot of the government schools and government buildings and it really changed the Australian white perspective. Mm, it's how we sort of saw, we'd never seen the outback, I'd never seen the outback and then I said oh look at that those gum trees and the, the blue range or purple ranges. Yeah and those those colours that you see that some people even today say to me oh that can't be like that. Well, if you go there, and I've taken a lot of people into the desert, if you go there and in certain times of the day, the, the, the rocks change colours. It's just like Uluru, and that changes from blue to red to mauve to purple and to black sometimes. It's all there, and what he did is he just gave a different perspective for everyone in Australia to look at, and, and it, he can really be single-handedly responsible for a lot of people travelling into the centre of Australia because most Australians lived around the basin, around the edges of Australia. They'd never, never ever been into the, into the Red Centre before and it, it did encourage a lot of people to do that. I mean, nowadays, I guess it's a bit more common practice because, you know, a lot of people have got four-wheel drives and they don't have to go in there with a, with a donkey and a dilly bag sort of thing too. But, you know, his legacy is still going today because a lot of his... The children he taught to paint... Um, the Perulcha brothers he taught to paint, you know, the Rabunches and all those families that actually worked out of Hermansburg there. Their generations, their grandkids now are still painting and they're doing some absolutely exceptional works. So the legacy is still going, still going strong. He was really the first, wasn't he, in, in lots of ways? Oh, definitely. He was the first. I mean, he, he met Queen Elizabeth. You know, he was paraded round, if you like, when he had his exhibitions in Melbourne and Sydney and Adelaide. It was also very disappointing for him as well, too, because on one hand, he was everyone wanted a photo taken with him. Everyone wanted a book signed by him. Everyone wanted to, wanted to be standing next to him and talking to him. And I don't want to use the word token black man, but you know, nowadays, when you look back, that's all I can sort of think about, you know, because at the time and before 1967, I mean, Aboriginal people weren't even counted as, as people. They were classified classified under flora and fauna. I mean, Albert Nemajira needed a permit to leave his country and go interstate, even to go to his own exhibitions. But he was a very, very dignified man, a very dignified man and a very humble man. But in the end, I think it broke him in the end because there are things which happened where he always wanted to buy land and, and have a house in Alice Springs to, to bring his family up. And he was never allowed to do that in the early days because Aboriginal people were not allowed to live in town. They were allowed to live on the outskirts of town and, and slept in the creek bed and under trees and that. When he was eventually given citizenship and when he was eventually allowed to buy a house in Alice Springs, he could do that himself, but he couldn't bring his children in. Now, what's the point of giving someone like anybody a reason to come into Alice Springs and to buy a house and not actually be able to bring your family in with you? I mean, it's just 
not only irresponsible, it's despicable. And of course, when he was given the citizenship, that he was allowed to buy alcohol. Well, Albert Nemajira wasn't a drinker at all. He did have a few drinks towards the end of his life, but he wasn't a drinker. But he was allowed to buy alcohol. And when in Aboriginal culture, as it still is today, is a sharing culture, he not only shared all his money, but he also shared his food and, of course, alcohol. And when other people drank the alcohol and you know someone was badly harmed in uh, one of the communities, um, he was blamed for that and uh, went to court incarcerated in, in, out in Papunya and that really broke him and you know they, his ancestors today, his grandkids and that sort of stuff, they say that he's, he really died of a broken heart. I've been talking to Ken McGregor. Ken, you live in Melbourne sometimes, often you're out in the Western Desert obviously, you're in Sydney at the moment. Where's home for you? <laughs> Where do you feel at home? Well I did say to someone the other day, whatever happens to me they've got to scatter my ashes in the West McDonnell Ranges because I do feel at home there. But I do live in Melbourne but for instance tomorrow I go up there probably 10 times a year and tomorrow I'm flying to Alice Springs to help the uh, Aboriginal people from the Hermansburg School work at the Many Hands Art Gallery to produce some commissions you know, to keep the tradition going. What do you like about, what's, what is it about that desert country? What do you like about it do you think? Well look I've been fortunate enough over the years to do a lot of travel you know, even through the Sahara Desert and places like that but the Western Desert to me it's because of the Aboriginal culture, it's because of the colours it's because of the insects, the leaves, the berries, the animals. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a combination, uh, it's a complex combination of all of those things. But when you're out there and you, you roll your swag out on top of a sand dune and you watch the sun go down and then you um, wake you're up... You're a blood-curdling dingo? Or? Well, a dingo, you, you know, I put, I put water out for them. They just come in and drink... Oh, they just come into your campsite and drink, drink the water out of your billy. They're fine, they're harmless. You know, they're just inquisitive animals. But you know, then you wake up in the morning and you hear the magnificent dawn chorus and you just wonder yourself, you, don't, you hardly see the birds during the day, but they're there, you know, and the dawn chorus is absolutely superb and then, you know, the sun breaks across the West McDonnell Ranges and lights up the ranges with its magnificent glow. I mean, it's God's country. Ken, great to talk to you. Good luck. Most of us will never get the chance to see the things you have, so it's wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Pleasure. Pleasure.